Hello, and welcome to the Complete History of Science. Series 2, Episode 2, Archimedes. Mostly, scientific progress takes place incrementally. Largely, the narrative of this podcast will be how people conducting science build on the work of their predecessors, improving, revising, and expanding what went before. When we investigated ancient astronomy in the last series, we saw this process in action. Ptolemy created detailed, complex, and largely accurate models of the solar system, but these were possible due to a slow process of refinement which had started with Eudoxus 500 years earlier. Likewise, when Hipparchus measured the size and distances of the Sun and Moon, his estimates were based on tweaking the work of Aristarchus a century before. Indeed, it could be argued that all scientific progress is the result of this incremental expansion of the work of previous generations. Even someone like Newton, who was undoubtedly a genius, was conscious of the great debt he owed his predecessors like Galileo, Copernicus and Kepler. Similarly, Einstein created his theory of special relativity to explain the famous Michelson-Morley experiment and used mathematical results already proven by Lorentz and Poincaré. This is, of course, not to belittle any achievement, but rather it is to say that scientific work is really without precedent. However, if I were asked to point to an exception to this model of progress, the first name that comes to mind would be Archimedes. Archimedes was a man with no real forebears, and much of his scientific achievements have no real precedent. He was both a practical man, undertaking large engineering projects, and a mathematician of the first rank. In the history of science, he is a monumental figure whose work, uniquely amongst the scientists of antiquity, is still accepted largely unchanged right up to the present day. Due to his stature, it's a tricky task to delve into Archimedes' biography, as much of the solid facts are obscured by the various legends around his life. What we know definitely is that Archimedes was a Greek, born in Syracuse on the island of Sicily, around the beginning of the 3rd century BC, making him a rough contemporary of Eratosthenes. He may have also been related to King Hiero, the ruler of Syracuse, though this is less certain. While he was frequently mentioned in later Roman sources, details are scattered, and what we are left with are several mythic stories around his life. Foremost of these is the story of his discovery of the principle of buoyancy while taking a bath. The tale which is usually told was first recounted by Vitruvius, a Roman architect and engineer, around 200 years after Archimedes' death. And while most people likely know the story, it's worth briefly repeating, as it is amongst the founding myths in the history of science. Vitruvius writes that the king of Syracuse, Hiero, contracted a goldsmith to create a crown of gold as an offering at a temple. However, it had been rumoured that the goldsmith may have mixed the gold with silver in order to cheat the king. The king, indignant at the possible fraud, requested that Archimedes find a way to test the gold content of the crown without damaging or defacing it. Archimedes solved the problem one evening as he was bathing, when he realised that the volume of water spilling from the sides of the bath was in proportion 
to the volume being submerged. Realising this would allow him to solve the problem, he leapt from the bath crying Eureka, the Greek transliteration of I have found it. What Archimedes had realised was that two equal weights of gold take up an equivalent volume. However, if the crown is diluted with silver, a lighter metal, the same weight should take up a greater volume. Or put another way, if the crown was diluted with silver, it would displace more water than an equivalent weight of gold. Archimedes' supposed eureka moment was realising that the water displaced in the bathtub could be used to measure this. The story, of course, is very likely fictional, and as Galileo first pointed out, the method recounted by Vitruvius is unlikely to work, as the difference in volume would have been too small to measure. Nevertheless, there may be a kernel of truth to the story, because the problem of the purity of gold was a very real issue in the ancient world. At the time, most gold in ancient Greece was derived from electrum, an ore which contains both gold and silver and could be difficult to separate. So even an honest goldsmith may have had problems offering a crown of pure gold. Galileo actually suggests another similar technique Archimedes may have used in order to resolve the problem. The crown and an equal weight of gold could simply be placed on a balance. If you then submerged this in water, a crown of pure gold would continue to balance with the weight. However, if the crown of gold is impure, it will begin to rise as there will be a greater force of buoyancy on the crown. Of course, whether this was really a method used by Archimedes is pure speculation, and the story illustrates how Archimedes' legend is conflated with, and sometimes hides, his very real scientific achievements. Because while this story may or may not have been true, what is known for certain is that Archimedes left a scientific treatise on buoyancy which still survives. The treatise, known as On Floating Bodies, sets out what became known as Archimedes' principle. Stated simply, it says that an object immersed in water will feel a buoyant force upwards, equal to the weight of the water it displaces. This is the idea on which Galileo's version of the gold crown story rests, but its consequences are more far-reaching and important. Because in On Floating Bodies, Archimedes creates a whole new scientific field known as hydrostatics. In the main, the treatise explores the many practical consequences of Archimedes' principle, demonstrating, for example, why ships float. He investigates mathematically which parabola-like shapes resembling ships' hulls might be stable in water. His analysis contains a degree of sophistication which is arguably unique for a scientific work of this time. On Floating Bodies stands as a testament to two complementary aspects of Archimedes' work, which make him perhaps the most outstanding scientist of his age. The first of these is his mathematical ability. Of his many mathematical achievements, he derived the first accurate estimate of pi. He was the first to use exponentials to express very large numbers. He proved a range of geometrical theorems and used his method of exhaustion, which anticipated the development of calculus almost 2,000 years later. However, what separates Archimedes 
from the many outstanding mathematicians of antiquity is that he was also a very practical man. Indeed, much of Archimedes' fame derives from his supposed inventions. For example, when the Romans attempted to capture Syracuse during the Second Punic War, Archimedes was said to have invented several weapons of warfare to keep them at bay. These include a large parabolic mirror, which was supposedly used to concentrate the rays of the sun onto Roman ships and cause them to catch fire. He is also said to have installed a weapon along the walls of Syracuse, what is known as Archimedes' claw. This defended the walls from amphibious assault by reaching down and grabbing enemy ships, possibly with a grappling hook, then lifting them up and causing them to capsize. Unfortunately, only very brief descriptions of these inventions survive, and it's debatable how seriously we should take these stories. Nevertheless, it is interesting that yet again, these legends around his life do reflect what we know for certain around his scientific work. For example, though we can't know how Archimedes' claw might have worked in practice, more than likely, it would have relied on the use of a lever. And while of course Archimedes didn't invent the lever, we do know he did apply his considerable mathematical analysis to investigate the principle of levers. Specifically, in his treatise, On the Equilibrium of Planes, he demonstrates the principle of moments, which states that the clockwise moments around a pivot are equal to the anti-clockwise moments. A moment here is defined as the product of the weight multiplied by the distance from the pivot. An equivalent way of looking at this is that if you want to increase the turning force of a lever, you must increase the weight applied or the distance from the pivot. This idea is the basis of Archimedes' famous quote, Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. However, the real achievement of Archimedes is realising the power of mathematics as a method of describing the physical world. Instead of imagining any specific levers or objects, Archimedes reduces them to a simple mathematical description. For example, the objects on the lever shed all of their defining characteristics such as shape, size or colour, except for one, their weight, which Archimedes called magnitude. Archimedes demonstrated we can simplify this model even further by considering this magnitude to act at a single point, known as the centre of gravity. His realisation is that by making abstract the operation of the lever, he could illuminate the underlying principle. This reduction of the world to a mathematical model may strike us as an obvious thing to do. However, in the ancient world, it was new, and it was an idea which would prove to be significant. To fully grasp this significance, and Archimedes' place in the history of science as a whole, I think there is an interesting comparison to be made with the subject of our last episode, Aristotle. Each of these men would have a tremendous but very different legacy, and this was largely a consequence of the different ways they approached the natural world. Aristotle tended to avoid heavy mathematical descriptions of the world. As a philosopher, Aristotle was interested in knowledge, but preferred to seek truth through a combination of observation and argument. Interestingly, 
even when Aristotle's arguments clearly imply some mathematical statement, he seems to have never thought to make it explicit. By contrast, Archimedes' ideas are almost exclusively constructed mathematically, and he avoids philosophical speculation entirely. The two men also differ greatly in the scope of their work. Archimedes' goals were modest, and he was contented to spend his time solving mathematical problems with relatively limited applicability. Aristotle's goals, however, were not. He seemingly set his sights on explaining all the physical phenomena of which the ancient Greeks were aware, expounding on everything from rainbows to rivers. All of this, Aristotle synthesized into his larger philosophical system, which would have a profound influence on the Islamic and later medieval world. However, Aristotle's reputation came crashing down in the early modern period, and when Newton derived his laws of motion and gravity, it was to Archimedes, not Aristotle, that he looked. The reason for this is that Newton shared Archimedes' insight into the world. Newton's work, like Archimedes, reduced the complexity of the real world to a mathematical representation. Both men were guided by the implicit assumption that ours is a mathematical universe, directed by universal laws. Archimedes' ultimate triumph was in demonstrating to us all that with due care and thought, these laws and this mathematical universe are accessible to us, if only in glimpses. (laughs) 